0: Well, whenever I think of the holiness of God, one passage of Scripture comes to my mind, and that is that classic text in Isaiah chapter 6, one that I'm sure you're familiar with, but I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, and perhaps look at this text with some fresh eyes in light of our present situation as... Believers living in a corrupt country that seems to be experiencing uh, the early warning signs of God's judgment. And I find great comfort, great encouragement, great hope here in this passage, Isaiah chapter 6, a beloved one I'm sure by uh, many of you. Let me just read uh, verses 1 through 8 as we begin. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah writes, In the year of King Uzziah, I saw the Lord on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. Father, we thank you for the instruction that we gain from your word. We know that the New Testament says that everything that was written in the past, particularly the Old Testament, was written for our instruction we might have hope. You are the God of hope. And we're thankful that as we have been called by you to navigate this crazy season in the life of our country and even our our world, and uh, Lord, that you have given us an example to follow in Isaiah. And so I pray that as we Consider this familiar text this morning that you would, by your spirit, stir up our hearts and accomplish your purposes in us and through us as a result of this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, our oldest son, Zach, posted a couple of things on his Facebook page. One is that he got engaged, which we are... Very excited about. And that went down yesterday at Galveston Beach. And uh, it was uh, something we've been looking forward to and praying with him about. And uh, so we rejoice with his uh, fiance, Elise. And um, the other thing he posted earlier in the week uh, was very encouraging to me. And it was uh, an old throwback video of Billy Graham, and a little, uh, short little snippet from one of his sermons that he preached years ago, and I'm sure sure you're all familiar with Billy Graham, and uh, it was so encouraging, so inspiring, it just really shot me in my heart when I heard this little one-minute clip, and uh, if you haven't seen it, I wanted you to see it and hear it. And I think it'll be a good introduction to what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's watch that real quick. Tell me what you're doing. And God said, no, I'm not going to tell you Habakkuk. Because if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. If God today told us what he's doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. Don't you think God's given up and God's abdicated and God's left the throne? He hasn't he's still on the throne and those of us that know him put our trust in him and him alone i don't put my trust in washington i don't put my trust in the united nations i don't put my trust in myself i don't put trust in my money i put my trust in the lord jesus christ when all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters he'll be there Amen. And so we watched that together as a family. And the first thing Kelly said is, So, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I said, That. I think you're aware that our nation is in a time of crisis, not unlike the crisis the nation of Israel was facing here in the book of Isaiah. And this book is a record of the prophetic ministry of Isaiah to the nation of Israel, particularly to the nation of Judah. And if you remember the history of Israel, after the death of King Solomon, Israel experienced a civil war of sorts, and Jeroboam led a rebellion against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and the kingdom split in two. And the ten northern tribes band together with Jeroboam, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed true to Rehoboam, They were ultimately referred to as just Judah. Well, as a result of a series of ungodly kings, the northern tribes quickly wandered away from the Lord and rebelled against Him. And God sent the nation of Assyria to judge them and take them into exile and remove them from the land of Israel. Judah, on the other hand, had a number of godly kings, and so that slowed the the rate of compromise and corruption, but they too eventually rebelled against God. And so God raised up Isaiah to confront their sinful rebellion and to, to plead with them to repent in order to, to, to thwart, uh, or excuse to, me, to, to avert God's coming judgment. And so he warned them, if they didn't change their ways, they would be invaded and taken into exile by the Babylonians, just like the Assyrians had, had done to Israel in the north. Now, unlike the other major prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Isaiah didn't begin with an, with an account of his call to ministry. Instead, he started by giving a graphic description of how Judah had violated the holiness of God. Turn back to chapter 1 for a moment. And this is typically where you would find the prophet's um, record of God's call on their life and specifically why God had called them. But that's not how Isaiah starts. In fact, we're going to see he waits to get to that calling until chapter 6. But notice the first six verses here. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is a desolation is overthrown. By strangers. And then turn over to chapter 5, which is more the immediate context here of chapter 6. And again, it's important that we see chapter 6 in its context. Here we have Isaiah expanding on the rebellion of the nation of Judah. But notice the imagery he uses here in chapter 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will become trampled ground. I will lay waste Lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Now, if it's any wonder who God was referring to here in this parable of the vineyard, obviously He was the, the vine uh, or the, the owner of uh, the vineyard and the vine was, or the vineyard, was Israel. Notice verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. so God was simply saying, there's nothing more that I could have done for you as a nation to set you up for success. I blessed you over and over and over again. And I expected to see positive results, good fruit. But all I saw was bad fruit. And so therefore, I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy the vineyard. And he goes on in the the remainder of chapter 5, to lay out a series of six woes targeting the wickedness of the nation of Judah. Now, that was the last thing, by the way, in the Bible that you ever wanted anybody to say to you, is woe. And that wasn't, hey, slow down, hold your horses, woe. This was a a word of judgment. Woe to those who do this or do that. And it was uh, God saying that I am going to judge you, I'm going to punish you because of the way you're living. And, of course, Jesus gave the woes against the Pharisees, right, the religious leaders of the day, and said that's why they were going to be punished. But here we have six woes laid out upon the nation of Judah. Now, we won't take time to read the entire section but if you were to read this entire section, I think you would agree with me that this has an uncanny resemblance to the United States of America. For example, verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with carts of rope who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. So God pictures the nation of Judah just hauling their sin around in a cart. I mean, they just just couldn't get enough of their sin, and so they just kept throwing in the cart, and they were hauling this along and actually taunting God to do anything about it. But then look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men mixing strong drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Again, lots of comparisons here we could make with our country. Not just with the citizens, but also with our leaders. And then notice the conclusion of these woes. Verse 24, Therefore... As a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will come like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against His people and has stretched out His hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuge in the middle of the streets. For all this His anger is not spent, but His hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth, and behold, it will come with speed swiftly, referring there to the nation of Babylon, and God was going to whistle to the nation of Babylon like a dog to do his bidding to bring punishment upon the nation of Judah. Verse 27, no one in it is weary or stumbles, none slubbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt or its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress, even the light is darkened by its cloud. Not only was Isaiah watching all this go down, he was hearing God speak to him, and he was actually God's mouthpiece. These are the things coming out of his own mouth as an instrument of God. And I think the looming question in his mind, and it may be in our minds as well, what went wrong? Have the purposes of God somehow been thwarted or defeated? Is, is God still in control? Is God still on the throne? Aren't the Israelites still His people? And perhaps another question that was in Isaiah's mind was, what kind of person is God looking for? in a time of crisis like this? Well, I think we find the answer to those questions in chapter 6, where Isaiah finally got around to recording how God had officially called and commissioned him to serve as a prophet. And like, like every prophet, God had to first prepare him for the job. And in the case of Isaiah, the way God prepared him was by giving him a vision of his majestic holiness that overwhelmed him with a sense of his utter sinfulness. And he was never the same after this, this awe-inspiring, life-changing encounter with God. And I want us to consider this morning, what are, what are the, the, the phases, if you will, involved in an, in an awe-inspiring, life-changing encounter with God. What does it look like? How can we have a similar encounter with God like Isaiah did here in Isaiah chapter 6? Well, really just four words, four words to keep in mind this morning. Number one is holiness. Number two is brokenness. Number three is forgiveness. And lastly, We'll look at usefulness. Let's look first of all at this word holiness and how we see here in verses one through four how Isaiah was captivated by God. He was captivated by God. Notice the first phrase there in the year of King Uzziah's death. That's an important phrase there. You say, Who's King Uzziah and why does he matter? Well, he had reigned for over 50 years, and during his reign the nation of Judah had experienced great peace and prosperity. Unfortunately, his success went to his head and he became proud and lost his sense of reverence and awe for God, which caused him to do something that ultimately led to his death. You can turn back to 2nd Chronicles chapter 26 to see the account. 2nd Chronicles chapter 26. Verse 16, here we see how pride was Uzziah's undoing. This is Second Chronicles twenty six sixteen. but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord as God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with censor in his hand for a burning incense for burning incense, was enraged, and while he was enraged with the priest, a leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house judging the people of the land. So Uzziah was king. And he decided that since he was king, he could do whatever he wanted. And so he entered the temple one day and decided to burn some incense on the altar, which was something reserved only for the priests. And when the priests saw him, They confronted him, and they demanded he get out of the temple, and he was livid. Who are you to speak to me like that? You have no right to order me around. And so while he was raging against them, leprosy immediately broke out on his forehead. And they quickly ushered him out because he was unclean. He remained a leper until the day he died, all because he violated God's holiness. So, when it says here in Isaiah 6, in the year of Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, Isaiah was well acquainted with King Uzziah's life and the deadly consequences of irreverently infringing on God's holiness as a result of losing a sense of awe for God. And so it's no wonder that Isaiah responded the way that he did when he came face to face with with the king of kings here in Isaiah 6. Notice he says, I saw the Lord. Isaiah may have had this experience in the temple in Jerusalem, but in his vision, wherever he was, he was taken up to heaven itself. And everything about this This whole experience was designed to show Isaiah the transcendent holiness of God. Notice it says here, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. So the fact that He was seated on a throne is significant. In other words, it's signifying that that God is sovereign. Sovereign. And he's reigning over heaven and earth, and the throne was high. It was lifted up to show that God is far above his creatures. And he was wearing a robe, and it was so long that it filled the entire temple. I mean, you just think of this robe just filling every nook and cranny of, of the temple. Sort of like a, a bride's wedding train, right? The, the longer and the bigger the train, the, the, the more uh, pomp and circumstance is required. And then notice verse 2, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So God was attended by a group of holy angels called seraphim, or literally burning ones. And they each had six wings, two to cover their feet, perhaps even as Moses learned when he came to that burning bush and God said to him, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is what? Holy ground. Two to cover their face. Moses also found out on the um, mountain there when he wanted to see God's glory. God said no man can see God's face and what? And live. And so they've got two covering their feet because they're standing on holy ground. They've got who to cover their face because they cannot see, no living creature can see God and, and live. And then two, to hover around God. And so they were at the beck and call of God, ready to serve Him at a moment's notice. That's the idea, the picture of the kind of like holy hummingbirds, just kind of, if you ever seen a little uh, hummingbird uh, feeder, it's, it's fascinating to watch how they just kind of hover there and they dart and all around, they go away and all of them, they're back. That's the idea that comes to my mind when I think of these angels as holy hummingbirds. And then verse 3, probably the most familiar verse in this text. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so these seraphim were chanting in an antiphonal way. A song exalting the holiness of God to the highest possible measure. They didn't just say God is holy. They said he's holy, holy, holy. And the Jews would use repetition for the sake of emphasizing something. And so this was like underlining or bolding something. And so here in the text, Isaiah was highlighting and emphasizing the supreme importance of God's Holiness, so that this was, this was super important. This was not uh, an attribute of God just to, to breeze over. And so let's take a moment to talk about what does it mean that God is holy. Well, the word holy literally means to cut or to separate. In other words, to be holy means to be separate or to be set apart from something. And so the fact that God is holy means that He is both set apart from sin, but He's also set apart from us. And so there's really two aspects of, of God's holiness. First of all, He's set apart from creation. And this is, really emphasizes His majesty or His uniqueness. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 says this, There was no one holy like the Lord. In other words, there is a profound difference between God and the rest of His creation. He is totally different than us, completely distinct from us. He's absolutely other than us. So holiness signifies how He he is infinitely above and beyond us, how there is this infinite distance that separates Him from us. And so He's set apart from creation, but He's also set apart from corruption. And, and this really emphasizes His purity or His righteousness. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, the prophet writes, Your eyes are too pure or too holy to look at evil. In other words, God is absolutely free from anything wicked or evil. He's too pure to even look at evil, let alone do it. He's untouched. He's unstained by sin. He's perfectly pure and without sin. He he only and always does what is right. He never does anything that's wrong. And he can't tolerate any kind of sin or evil in his presence. He can never excuse or ignore any sin no matter how small. He hates it. He must punish it. By the way, holy is the one word that God used more than any other word to describe Himself in the Bible. This is God's revelation of Himself to us. And apparently, the thing that He wanted us to understand about Him the most, the most important thing He wanted us to know about Him was that He is holy. In fact, some theologians have actually concluded that, that holiness is the premier attribute of God, the chief attribute of God. In fact, some suggest that it isn't just one of many attributes, but it's the supreme attribute. It's the sum of all of His attributes. It's, according to uh, Charnock, one of the great Puritan writers, it's the crown of all of God's attributes. That His justice is holy, that His love is holy, that His grace is holy, that His mercy is holy, that His righteousness is holy, His faithfulness is holy. Someone wrote this, quote, holiness is arguably the most significant of all God's attributes. When the angels worship in heaven, they don't say eternal, eternal, eternal. Faithful, faithful, faithful wise, 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 or mighty, 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 they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You may remember in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, when John was uh, having a vision, his own vision of of, of the, the future kingdom and what heaven would be like, This is how he describes heaven. Revelation 4 8, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, sound familiar, right? Are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was, and who is, and who is to come. In other words, this will be the perpetual praise of the angels throughout eternity. We're going to hear this someday with our own ears. And I think we'll also join in with the angels as they praise God. And we'll never stop saying it day after day, year after year, millennium after millennium, forever and ever, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Notice the effect that their chant, if you will, had on the, the temple itself, the throne room, if you will. Verse 4 And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. It's interesting that they talk about the foundations of the thresholds trembled. We're talking about the, the thresholds, the doorways, right? And when we were, when we lived in California, we learned very quickly that. The safest place to go in an earthquake is where? Out of California. Yeah, no. Uh, In the doorway. So you would get up and you'd go stand in a doorway in a closet or something where there was a threshold so there was extra uh, support in case the roof came down, you would be in a safe spot. But this was such a stunning experience that the foundations of the thresholds, even the doorways were shaking. The thundering praise of the, the angelic voices was so loud, it was so powerful, it caused the, the doorpost to rattle. And there was smoke everywhere. Again, all the shaking, all the smoking is, is, is representative of the holy fire of God's presence. And this vision that Isaiah had of God's holiness made a profound impact on him. And it really, it really set the tone for, for the rest of his life and ministry because he stressed the theme of God's holiness throughout this book. In fact, he called God the Holy One 31 times in this prophecy, more than anyone else in the Bible. And so that's the first thing we see here is how... Isaiah was captivated by the holiness of God. But then notice how that led to brokenness and how he was brought under conviction by God. Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me. Again, that was not anything you ever wanted to hear pronounced against you. How ironic that here is the prophet himself pronouncing a woe or a curse on himself. He just got done giving all the woes for the nation of Israel. Now he's woeing himself. And he says, woe is me for I am ruined. I am undone, unraveled, literally coming apart at the seams. He felt like he was being annihilated or destroyed. I always think of the the wicked witch of the West. I'm melting. Is kind of what he was saying. He felt like he was disintegrating. Why? He says, Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So this vision of God's holiness produced in in, in Isaiah a profound conviction of sin. He had this overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness. And ironically, Isaiah was convicted most about his sinful mouth, which was the the, the specific instrument that God used to communicate his truth to the nation of Judah. And so as a prophet, it was Isaiah's job to, to, to to be God's mouthpiece to speak of his holiness. But he realized that he had an unholy mouth, that his lips were unclean. We're very familiar with what he went on to say in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Isaiah 64, verse 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment." So here's the prophet who's, who's been preaching about God's holiness, and he believed in God's holiness, but now he had actually experienced God's holiness firsthand. And so for the first time in his life, Isaiah saw God for who he really was, and consequently for the first time he saw himself for who he really was. And he was deeply crushed and convicted by his utter filthiness, his utter, utter utter unworthiness. Notice he said, why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I think the, the conclusion that Isaiah came to was that if I saw him, that means he also saw me. Which means I'm a dead man. Why? Well, Exodus thirty-three twenty. I already mentioned this. God had told Moses, no man can see me and live. It seems like everyone who came face to face with God in both the Old and New Testament had a similar response. You remember Samson's dad, Manoah, when he saw the angel of the Lord and he told his wife, this is what he said, quote, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Well, hon, we saw God, hope you enjoyed that, but now we're going to die. And then John, in the book of Revelation, he said this, quote, When I saw him, he saw a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. This is what always what happens when, when we see God for who he really is. We see ourselves for who we really are. And we stop comparing ourselves to other people and become painfully aware of how far we fall short of God's holiness. As long as we're looking at the person next to us, right? We're like, hey, I'm feeling pretty good about myself, right? But when you compare yourself to God and you see His awesomeness, all you can see is your awfulness, and you see His greatness. All you can see is your grossness. You see His worthiness, and all you can see is your own wretchedness. You see His holiness, and all you can see is your own hideousness. You now I think about these examples of people that came into the presence of God. And I can't help but think about the trend in the church today, which seems to be to provide an upbeat, casual, come-as-you-are atmosphere where people feel comfortable and right at home in God's presence. And I think that's really why it appeals to people is because that's what most people are looking for in church, a place where they can come have a feel-good experience and, and leave all happy and encouraged. And naturally, there will be times when we leave church upbeat and encouraged because of the singing, because of the preaching, but sometimes going to church can be a devastating experience. Because when you talk about sin, and I mean, things can get pretty ugly. And we're not going to leave feeling very good about ourselves. And it's not that I don't want us to be encouraged and challenged every time we come to church that's a that's a good thing but we have to keep in mind that if we are truly coming into the presence of God like Isaiah did it may be painful at times but it'll be helpful won't it it'll be helpful in the long run because like Isaiah even though he may have been shattered by his utter sinfulness God was gracious And merciful to not leave him in that shattered state. Nor will he leave us in that shattered state. He'll respond to our broken and contrite confession of sin by cleansing us just like he did Isaiah. Notice the third phase of this this amazing experience that Isaiah had in the presence of the Lord. we just call it forgiveness. Forgiveness. He was... He was a cleansed by God. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So Isaiah was crushed by this vision of God's holiness, but because he responded with a broken and contrite heart, God had mercy on him. God showed compassion. God purified him and forgave him and and, and in a sense put him back together again. And as a result of this experience, Isaiah became an advocate for God's compassionate forgiveness of sinners just like him. Later on in this book... He said things like this. This is Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah knew that was true because he'd experienced it himself. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, Remember, he was high and lifted up on his throne. So this is what the high and exalted one says, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Yes, God may be high and lifted up and and so far away from who we are, and yet he's quick to condescend to those who are broken and contrite in heart. And He will come to our rescue. And He will forgive us. He will restore us. And so having responded to God's holiness with this broken and contrite heart and having confessed his, his own sin and experienced God's cleansing, Isaiah now was ready. He was ready to tell Judah about a holy God who not only judges sin, but also forgives sin. If you're willing to repent and turn back to Him. And that brings us to the final phase here. We could just call it usefulness. And here we see in verse 8 how Isaiah was officially commissioned by God. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. So God was looking for someone to warn Judah of the judgment to come if they didn't repent. And so Isaiah humbly responded to God's call and God commissioned him to serve as his prophet. And I hope you notice here, there there was no trace of self-confidence or self-righteousness in Isaiah's response. I imagine after having an experience like this, he may have said something like, um, I'm available, maybe you could use me perhaps. And God says, you'll do. Verse 9, he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. I mean, if you understand what God was saying to Isaiah here, you understand that these were not very encouraging words for a young preacher at the beginning of his ministry. He's essentially saying, oh, by the way, Isaiah, no one's going to listen to you. You're just going to make people mad and rebel against me even more. Well, that doesn't sound too fun, does it? But God was simply warning Isaiah that his message was going to be rejected and his his ministry would have a blinding, deafening, hardening effect on the people of Judah. And so naturally, Isaiah wondered, well, how long would he have to minister like this without any positive results? Verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? How long is it going to be this way? And God told him that his ministry would last until his judgment fell and Judah was taken off into exile by the Babylonians. Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. At this point, at this point I wonder if... Isaiah was second, having second thoughts about having volunteered for this assignment. Well, lest that he feel like a total failure, God ended this chapter by encouraging Isaiah with a promise that a remnant would survive. Notice verse 13, yet there will be a tenth portion in it and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is where we get the doctrine of the remnant. And so Israel was likened to a stump of a fallen tree, and from its shoots will eventually come back that tree. That tree will come back. And so in the midst of this seemingly grim and pointless mission that God assigned to Isaiah, God injected this ray of hope. And this was a reference, obviously, first of all, to the fact that there was going to be a remnant that came back 70 years later, right, to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. But I think ultimately this blessed hope would be realized in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if you are familiar with this book, the book of Isaiah, you know that God revealed more messianic prophecy to Isaiah than anyone else in the Old Testament. That's why he's the most often quoted prophet in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself quotes Isaiah. Turn to John chapter 12. I want you to see something that I think is very fascinating. If you remember, Isaiah claimed that he saw the Lord, but the Bible says no one can see God in what? And live. And besides, God is spirit. He's invisible. We see that from John 118, 1 Timothy 6:16. 6, 1 John 4 12. So, so, what or who did Isaiah see? John 12, verse 39. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and He hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and heal Him. And I heal them. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 6 here. But notice verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. See, here's John, the apostle, referring to the book of Isaiah, quoting the book of Isaiah, and he's saying the person that Isaiah saw was who? Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. He saw a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fits with our New Testament theology, Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the who? The invisible God. Jesus Christ lived a perfectly holy life. He died on a cross in the place of unholy people like you and like me. And the cross is the ultimate proof of God's holiness. Because it was there that he showed how much he hates sin and and how far he's willing to go to punish it and preserve his holiness. God hates sin so much that he killed his own son to destroy it. And when Christ hung on the cross, God unleashed His holy hatred for sin upon Him. And the moment Christ died, if you remember that thick veil in the temple, right, that separated for centuries, the Holy of Holies from right people getting in there, it blocked their way that was ripped in half from top to bottom, saying that God was the one doing this. And it was symbolic that because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, sinners could gain access to God's holy presence. And by raising Christ from the dead, God affirmed that the demands of His holiness had been fully satisfied by Christ. And so now, God offers forgiveness. To those of us who are willing to confess and forsake our sin and place our faith in Christ, death and resurrection alone, to escape God's wrath in hell and spend eternity with Him in heaven. And so when we repent of our sin and we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are clothed with Christ's holiness, which allows us to enter into heaven where we will forever worship God in the beauty and the splendor of His holiness. But until then, we get to be Isaiahs who live and minister in a time of crisis, in a time of distress. And as those who have been broken over our sin and have experienced God's forgiveness, we can now boldly and faithfully call others to repentance. And even if they don't listen, We know that God is a remnant, does He not? He's got folks out there He's chosen for salvation. And we are the ones privileged to share the good news with them. I remember years ago when I was going to school and serving at uh, Grace Community Church in California. John MacArthur preaching a message on Isaiah chapter 5 and 6. It's interesting how messages kind of stay with us for our entire life, right? You hear that message. There was just like, there's just a handful of messages that like you heard it and you'll never forget it. Well, that was one of them. And this is what he, he said. This is how he concluded that sermon, I was able to go back and find a transcript, an old transcript of it. And, and the title of the sermon was A Vision of God in a Time of Crisis. And this is how he concluded. He said, quote, This fits so perfectly for us, living in a world in crisis, asking the question, How do we reach this world? What kind of people is God looking for? Broken people. Those who have a vision of Him as high and lifted up and as high and lifted up and sovereign and holy and all glorious those who are lost in wonder love and praise those who are raptured by his majesty and his glory those who know that the vast majority will never hear and never listen but that god has his people and are humbly willing to go even though they know they're unworthy of such a calling that's us and god will gather in his own people amen Let's pray. And let me just ask you as we close our time this morning and your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, have you had an experience like this? Have you been captivated by God's holiness? Have you been convicted of your sinfulness? Have you been cleansed by God's forgiveness? That sounds a whole lot like salvation to me. And so the question is, do you know for sure that you're truly saved? That your sins have been forgiven. Your sins against the Holy God have forgiven, been forgiven by that same Holy God through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Today could be the day when you Get right with God the day when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He's just a prayer away. And if you've had that experience, if you have been truly saved, you've been truly born again, then I would ask you, have you been commissioned for usefulness? Are you sitting here today and in your heart, willing to say, here am I, send me. Regardless of what that might mean, what that might require, what you may have to do, where you may have to go, who you may have to talk to. Are you a modern day Isaiah who has laid himself or herself before the Lord to use however he would see fit? Father, we thank you for this very relevant text, and there seems to be a lot of parallels here with what Isaiah was experiencing and what we're experiencing here today in our country, and I pray that uh, the principles that we find here, your spirit would apply them to each one of our hearts, that you would save those who need to be saved, that you would sanctify all of us. We all need to be sanctified and set apart more and more, made more holy like you are holy. Ultimately, so that we could be used by you to win others to Christ. And so I pray that you just help us to be bold and faithful witnesses for Jesus this week. And that we wouldn't walk around depressed or discouraged with a frown on our face. Because we may not like what's going on in our country or maybe going on in our life but I pray that you would give us great encouragement, great hope as we've remembered today that you are still on your throne. Thank you for that reminder. May we rest in that as we go out of here today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.